Welcome to Grad Chat by PhD Balance. We talk about topics of grad school beyond just academic research and topics that might be more difficult to talk about day to day. Today is definitely going to be one of those days. So I'm pleased to be your host today. I'm Neba. I am a multimedia science communicator. I'm basically a science content creator. I am also the PhD Balance Ideals team leader. Ideals is our inclusivity diversity, equity, accessibility, leadership team here at PhD Balance. Um, before going any further, I would like to pay respect and acknowledge that I am on the unseceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone peoples, the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, they have never seceded, lost, or forgotten their responsibilities as the caretaker of this place. And I recognize that I benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. So if you like what you see here today on Grad Chat, please check out the PhD Balance YouTube channel for more of our Grad Chats and don't forget to subscribe for notifications for when we go live. So like I mentioned, our topic today is a little bit on the topics that are difficult to talk about in academia side. Um, we're gonna be talking about advisor conflict and LGBTQ plus mentorship. So I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Abby Nissenbaum. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Absolutely. So Abby is an MBA candidate and a data analyst in Nashville, Tennessee. She refused to falsify data as requested by her advisor and received a lot of retaliation and was asked to leave her PhD in social psychology. Secondly, Abby is also a talented musician and singer currently working on a forthcoming EP. It's going to be centered around themes of harassment and abuse in academia, as well as mental health consequences. So Abby, we are so pleased to have you today on Grad Chat to discuss your experiences. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about the, the situation with your advisor, what the lead up was like, and kind of how you found yourself in this place? Yeah, for sure. So um, during my first year of grad school, I was asked to work on um, a forthcoming manuscript with my advisor um, with an experiment that he had already conducted um, and had data for. So prior, prior to me going into the PhD program. Um, so I was basically just going to write up the manuscript for him and act as a second author. And this manuscript was centered around um, biphobic and homophobic harassment in the workplace. Um, and as a lesbian incoming student, my advisor, I guess, thought it would be good to have me be on the paper, not only as someone who is interested in those types of topics, but as someone who is part of the LGBTQ community. Um, so the following summer, after I had started working on that project in my first year of my PhD, um, I attended the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Sciences annual conference. And there I learned about a topic called key hacking. Um, and prior to attending that conference, as I was writing up this manuscript and analyzing data with my advisor, I realized that something that we did, a big part of how we obtained the results that we had obtained, um, used a, one of these statistical um, uh, things that you do that would fall under p-hacking. Um, p-hacking is um, sort of like any constellation of statistical techniques um, that inflates your p-value, so inflates your significance value while creating a misleading result. So in this case, we had participants, um, we asked participants basically about their experiences with heterosexist, um, so like biphobic or homophobic harassment in the workplace. And these participants were either straight, gay, 
lesbian, um, or bisexual. Yeah, so my advisor had asked participants to rate themselves as like one being mostly heterosexual, two being some or somewhat heterosexual, three was bisexual, four was mostly or somewhat uh, homosexual, and five was mostly homosexual. So it was a weird rating system. I have no idea where he came up with it or found it. Um, and so when we were analyzing the results, he had me first look at um, ones and twos as mostly heterosexual and threes and fives. Uh, I'm sorry, ones and twos were heterosexual and threes and fives were homosexual and then threes were bisexual. But then when he didn't find the result he wanted, um, so basically he found that bisexual people were not experiencing significantly more harassment than any other group. Um, at that point, he had me re reconfigure basically who was listed as heterosexual, homosexual, and bisexual um, by taking ones as now heterosexual, twos, threes, and fours as bisexual, and five as homosexual, which we know would not necessarily correspond to how those people were defining themselves or um, even ranking themselves in the first place. Um, so from there, we created a totally misleading result that wasn't really respectful to our participants' identities that they told us that they were, um, and further was actually doing something that the school considered data falsification according to their um, you know, data falsification guidelines. So it was basically selective reporting. Um, so at that point, when I realized what we were doing after learning about that in the conference, I told my advisor, I, you know, we have to either be transparent about it, um, say that it was just, you know, sort of a post hoc thing that we did, or I can't do it. Like, I can't pretend that these people rated themselves as bisexual in the beginning when they clearly did not. That's probably not how they would define themselves. Um, he got really angry about that, called me some really horrible names, like very publicly, um, wrote some unfortunately very inappropriate emails to other professors and people in the field that cost me jobs um, and other PhD positions if I wanted those. Um, and basically sent me on a tailspin of just <laughs> horrible experiences for a couple of years. Yeah, I think one thing that came up a lot when when I did grad chat about leaving PhDs and the con the concept of like what is academia outside of academia, a lot of people brought up the fact that your entire life and a lot of your career is kind of in the hands of your advisor and a person that I interviewed put it really well that like all the risk in an advisor advisee relationship is assumed by the advisee and there's no risk to the advisor when all this stuff happens and they have so much control over your job and things like that. Um, I want to go back a little bit first to kind of like this system of like figuring out whether a person is like where they are really sexually. Um, like, I think as you realize, like, you know, having just a scale of like a number scale is already kind of interestingly not quite right because there's people who are pansexual, demisexual, ace, not even on like a scale. It's more of like a, I don't think you can really put it on like a numbers chart. Um, how did you guys kind of like come up with this and how did you like come to the realization that this might not be the best way to represent people with LGBTQ plus identities? Sure. Um, so to preface, I guess I did not create this experiment. So I did not design this experiment and I did not run this experiment. So all the data were collected prior to me and being a PhD student. I was just working on the manuscript. 
um, for authorship as my, my advisor's doctoral student. Um, so my advisor is like a straight cis male. <laughs> um, he, I guess, came up with this in his mind. Um, I personally think that it's really hard to even give a Kinsey scale sometimes because there are so many different ways that people define themselves now as people are learning about different um, sexual orientations and gender identities and things like that. Um, I think it's better to actually just create a write-in if you can. Um, or another thing that maybe could have prevented this to begin with is if you specifically asked for participants who identified as bisexual, straight, heterosexual, um, or gay or lesbian homosexual. Um, so then you can avoid all that confusion down the line. You just ask for those participants up front. If that's how they define themselves, great. And then you can do whatever analysis you want. <laughs> Yeah, that certainly seems to be, I think, an easier way of if you want to ask a question involving the experience of bisexual people, for example, just get bisexual participants, right? Um, what was it like to, like, I guess, stand up to your advisor? I think a lot of people feel that they can't even do that in situations like when you have requests to falsify data or you have an advisor who might not be very supportive. How do you kind of like overcome the like mental barrier of you need to stand up to this person who controls a significant amount of your life and your work and your future. Yeah, I think that there was this misconception that I like marched into my advisor's office or like marched into a meeting and said, you know, Andrew Stewart's making me falsify data and I'm not going to do it. And that's not how it was at all. Um, we were just in like a one-on-one -on -one meeting. I brought up that I had learned about p-hacking at SIPs at the conference um, and that I thought what we did sort of fell under that umbrella. Um, and so in response, he told me that I was intellectually underdeveloped. He repeated that phrase again in front of all of my peers and all of the social psychology faculty members, um, which is also just to mention extremely ableist and just not ever an appropriate thing to tell an advisee or a student or anyone. Um, yeah, so he told me that and basically said, if you don't like it, then that's like, you just don't get it. You're just too stupid to understand. Um, so yeah, there wasn't a lot of like fortitude, I guess, in standing up to him. I just said, I learned about this thing. Are we doing this thing? Am I okay to do this? Am I going to get in trouble? Um, and he told me, no, you're just stupid. <laughs> um, I imagine after that initial like realization of like him being like, okay, no, this is, we're going to do it my way. How did you decide to like kind of continue and like continue to push back and decide like, no, I don't think this is the right way to do it. How did you like not just kind of fold under the pressures of like, you know, your job and you mentioned you had sent all these emails and stuff. So this clearly must have been like kind of a long, longer time scale. Yes, it was. It was, um, I think, over the course of like six or seven months. Um, so after he initially gave, you know, told me that sort of what I would consider an ableist slur, um, I was talking to a friend in another PhD program and she said, well, I have a really great um, professor who's taking on doctoral students next year, you should apply here. Um, so I actually decided to apply to one or two other programs. Um, at that point, I was getting my master's degree in a few months, my end master's. Um, and I could have just probably transferred my PhD work over to another institution and started from there. Um, 
So I'm trying to think of like how to <laughs> go from one topic to another, but yeah, so I did all of that. Um, and that's when I found out that he was sending emails. My advisor was sending emails to other um, faculty members to whom I'd applied, just telling them lies about me and, and writing actually such inappropriate things that another, that one of the faculty members who received this email called him and said, that is so inappropriate to say about your female student. I would, you know, like you need to stop that immediately. I also totally forgot your question. So I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> no, you're all good. Um, so it sounds like since it took place over so many months, like this really I imagine must have taken a toll on like your mental health and just kind of you being willing to even continue to apply to other places and constantly receiving news about these emails and things that he was saying. How did you kind of like decide to continue to retaliate and continue to like stay true and like this, you know, I don't want to falsify my data and not just kind of like bend under the pressure, like what mentally helped you? Um. I don't know. I just sort of pushed through with my own work. So I was doing my own um, en route master's thesis at that time. So I sort of focused all of my attention there. Um, and I, as I was writing that other manuscript, I sort of pushed it to the side and said, you know, we'll deal with that a little bit later because I've been working on all these other things too. Um, so I worked on my master's thesis and then basically write like the day that I, um, you know, successfully received my master's degree, um, did my thesis and everything. Um, my advisor just sent me a one-line email saying, you're out of my lab. Short, succinct, to the point. Um, I guess that part's good, but uh, dramatic. Um, did you have like any kind of like inclination that this was gonna happen? I had no idea. This was totally out of the blue because he, like I said, was, pretty abusive, pretty um, cruel as far as advisors go. Um, however, I've heard horror stories about advisors um, and about their relationships with advisees. So I didn't think anything was amiss. I was, you know, I clearly was able to successfully get my master's degree. So it's not like I was doing anything wrong academically. It's not like, like I had the equivalent of a 4.0 GPA and wasn't doing anything wrong. So I didn't think that there was any way where he could say that I was out of the program. Um, but I guess these advisors have the power to do basically whatever they want. Yeah, you, there's so many things that they can get away with and still not have any kind of like action taken against their job. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of a, the next question we have is something that came up during a conversation of leaving grad school, but is there anything that can be done or that you did do in response to behavior that your advisor had, like in response to his abuse, his emails? Was there any institutional recourse, legal recourse? What are the consequences for this? So obviously the consequences are non-existent because my advisor is still happily in his tenure track position or, you know, he has tenure now. Um, he was never disciplined in any way. He's still able to take on new students. Um, it's not like he was particularly prolific or well-known before, um, but it's not like his standing in the community has changed. And even the conference, so we presented this data at um, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, which is the largest international conference for social psychologists. When they heard that this data um, or these results were falsified, they did nothing. And 
there's there's no no recourse, no consequence, no nothing. He's the same as he was before, and only I was hurt. Gosh, I can imagine that's just incredibly frustrating and really awful. Um, during I guess this whole experience, did you ever consider like pursuing legal action at any point? Was there even a possibility to involve like the institution or any legal like people in the in the problem? So as part of this whole situation, um, I was made to go through sort of a sham review um, that no other student was asked to go through. So basically I was asked to do like um, comps or like qual qual exams. Um, So I was asked to do like an oral qual exam and on the basis, like with no warning, I was just brought into a room and asked to do like quals. Um, And on the basis of that, which no one else had to do, Um, They said, well, you're not, you know, you're not like at the stage that other, that your peers are at. Um, So that's extra impetus for you to be kicked from the program. Um, And one of the review things that they used was more, more like stringent than a review that they used for an incoming male faculty member. So basically they were holding me to a higher standard than a male faculty member. So on the basis of that, I actually went to the Title IX office. They never investigated. Um, I don't know if there's any recourse for that, but this is really at the heart of it, a Title IX issue. Um, It's Title IX retaliation. It's, I think also um, Title, is it Title VI? retaliation um not an attorney clearly (laughs) but i think that um, one is like intentional discrimination so so possibly um yeah i think you know going back to your point women are always held to a higher standard than men almost um it's really frustrating because it sounds like you really just took all these steps to try and position yourself to try and figure out what's going on and like try to find you know you're talking to the the people at your university you're talking to people to figure out what can happen and I think that's a big issue sometimes people kind of accuse you of like oh well did you do this did you do that and it's like yeah you actually did it just didn't have any actual consequence um and in terms of consequence it seems like a lot of it kind of landed on on your shoulders and um on that note can you go a little bit if you're comfortable into like the the backlash and the retaliation that you received Yeah, so on the night, um, like I said, I had earned my master's degree, and then that night was just given a one-line email saying, you're kicked out of the program. So I immediately called my best friend in the program, um, and I talked to my department head. She said, you know, like, oh, sorry, we didn't realize that this was out of the blue, Um, you know, and it doesn't mean you're kicked out of the program. It just means you have to find a new, um, basically, dissertation advisor. Um, as I was heading into my dissertation stage at that point. So luckily, my very best friend in the program um, was just hired as an incoming assistant professor um, in the psychology program. And he said, well, of course, I'll take you onto my lab, you know, into my lab. We're going to work together anyway. Um, So it seemed like everything was fine up until basically the time when the faculty had to vote on whether or not I could stay in the program, even though I had found another advisor. Um, and for reasons unbeknownst to me or really anyone, they said, no, he could not take me into his lab. 
Um, and from there I was removed. Um, so I forget again what the original question was, but that's sort of how I proceeded from there. No, it's okay. That was exactly the question. Um, gosh, this just like, can you give us a sense of like time? Like at what point did you have to leave the PhD program because they decided you weren't allowed to join this other um, dissertation advisor? So I earned my Enroute master's degree um, April 1st. And up until then, everything had been fine except for um, me not wanting to work on that one manuscript with my advisor. So I was told that night, you're out of the program. Um, May, I think around May 20th, um, the faculty voted that I was not allowed to join this other lab. Um, and by the way, there is no mention in the handbook of faculty voting about whether or not someone can stay in the program. Um, I found another lab and that was the lab I was supposed to be in. Um, and so from there I had to appeal and I wasn't able to get, um, you know, a final answer until I think close to Halloween. So this was all happening in 2019. So it was from April 1st to Halloween that I was there without a job, um, still paying rent in my apartment I wasn't allowed to get another job outside of the university because like most PhD contracts are not supposed to work outside of your TA ship or research assistantship. Um, so if through I, all of this, you are still doing like your TA duties, your research assistant duties. Yep. Um, except for, so basically from April 1st to May 20th or whatever I was doing that. But then from there on, I wasn't able to register for classes or do my, TA shift or anything that my contract allowed because I technically didn't have a lab because they wouldn't let me go into that other lab. Um, but I also wasn't allowed to get a job elsewhere because then they can come back at me or they could have come back at me and said, um, well, you're working elsewhere. That's also forbidden in your contract. Um, so there's that. So basically I was sitting alone in my apartment from like May 20th to October away from home, not in the same state as any of my family. My grad school friends um, obviously had to side with my advisor, otherwise they would have been retaliated against too. Um, it was such a mess and so unnecessary. And like any faculty member at any time could have put an end to this and they didn't. Yeah, I imagine this just whole thing is just really isolating and awful and just that lock of, last lock of, lack of control over the whole situation is just really frustrating and like just disappointing. Um, but I, I obviously can't speak to your experience. So what was this whole situation like on, on your mental health? Yeah, I mean, to reflect what you just said, it was super isolating. Um, my grad school friends, I think wanted to support me, but couldn't because they would be going up against their, you know, their own advisors and, this per, um, my advisor, Andrew Stewart, was the statistical uh, consult for our program. So he was basically on everyone's paper. Um, you know, all the faculty members would come to him and have him be their co-author. So he would do their statistical analyses. Um, so no one wanted to step on his feet. Um, no one wanted to support me. So I was literally sitting alone, having been, you know, having my life ripped out from under me uh, for, what six seven months something like that and it was horrible <laughs> terrible for your mental health do not recommend it yeah was there anything that like kind of helped you get through it were you I don't know 
leaning on friends outside of the program or going to therapy or I don't know, baking sourdough bread. (laughs) That's yeah. That's another thing I want to mention is that when you take away someone's salary and work and, you know, basically meaning of their life as, PhD program is for a lot of people, you also take away their access to any mental health resources, um, to any community support, or to, you know, even basic things like healthcare, which I was not eligible for because I wasn't a student. Um, So I didn't have any of those things. I didn't have any community support because none of my friends were, you know, able to talk to me without stepping on my advisor's toes. didn't have any sort of mental health care, didn't have a car, um, lived, you know, right next to the university. So it was basically just the university around and nothing else. Um, So yeah, it was definitely a lot of anguish. And um, really, all I had was a guitar. (laughs) So I started writing music. And like, I don't know, I did like Twitch for a while. I streamed on Twitch for some extra income. Yeah, I think like the the intersectionality of a lot of these resources is really wild. You know, we always see things about like, try this like 24 karat face mask and it'll make your skin really nice. And I'm like, is it really the face mask or is it just your access to a facial masseuse person who gives you a facial every single week or whatever, Miss Kendall Jenner. And like these like, you know, the money and the health and the mental health, it all goes like hand in hand. Um, I saw from like some of our previous correspondents that you were also on the LGBTQ plus like mentorship program. You were the coordinator for like the grad students committee on their like sexual orientation and gender diversity committee. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how it kind of like maybe reflected in your research? Yeah, that was an awesome experience. Um, So that was through the American Psychological Association um, grad students committee. Um, It's called So Good. So it's the Committee um, for Sexual Orientation and Gender Diversity. I think I missed a letter in there. Um, But basically we paired graduate students. um, I think they were mostly doctoral students in psychology with practitioners, faculty members, and industry leaders coming from a psychology background who also identified as as LGBT um, or LGBTQIA. So it was a way for people in psychology programs who are feeling isolated to connect with an actual professional in whatever industry um, they wanted to go into and not only network, but get some community support. Um, So we had, I think, about 50 mentor pairs in the 2019 to 2020 school year, which was awesome. (laughs) Wow. That sounds like a really useful resource for anyone who is in psychology and is part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I think having communities like that outside of your university can be really helpful because then they kind of like, you know, they understand the world of academia, but they're not entwined with every rumor and things like that that are going on in your university necessarily. Um, Do you have any advice for advisors who want to properly support their LGBTQ plus students? Yeah, I would say definitely be aware of the resources that are available um, at your university and in your broader field. So um, maybe look into, you know, if you're a psychology professor, maybe look into what the APA has to offer for LGBTQ students. And if you know that you can't provide that mentorship for yourself, 
or, or you know, for your student by yourself. Um, connect them with other people. Um, and I would also, I always say this, but just like be a decent human being to your mentees. There's never a reason to call someone any sort of slur or to say anything particularly negative to them. Um, and I think that that can go a long way in supporting mental health for not only people of marginalized communities, but just anyone in general. Yeah, certainly. Um, do you have a sense of like what kind of resources typically exist at universities for advisors to take advantage of? Um, sometimes universities will have LGBTQ centers that are designated. Um, other times there might be like LGBTQ research happening. Um, and those faculty members will sometimes be a part of the community themselves. Um, so I'd recommend those things. You can always have um, the university's mental health uh, resources on hand. And I think that's about it. Um, I mean, you can also be aware of like local happenings and things like that. Um, they can count yeah, I think a lot of it just comes down to if you care about something, you can take the effort to just Google LGBTQ plus resources and then your city name or your university and just putting in that little bit of effort. Exactly. Um, yeah, so now you've you've changed fields, right? You're now doing an MBA? I am doing an MBA. Um, so I'm doing an MBA at the University of Memphis, which has been nothing but lovely thus far. Um, it's definitely a pivot and it's a different type of, or it's a different way of looking at research and of looking at data. Um, but it's really been a great integration with my psychology background, and I have nothing but good things to say about that so far. Yeah. Did your experience in academia, like, put you off doing psychology and research, or is it a little more, like, everything that happened has made it impossible? Yeah. I mean, part of it is that there's no way to continue with my psychology PhD now, um, just because I'm so known, I guess, as the person attached to this unfortunate situation. Um, but it also made me realize that a lot of psychology research is predicated on these misleading or erroneous findings, um, which really turned me off of the field in general. Um, I think we need to really integrate more transparent practices into our science. Yeah, certainly. As a science communicator, I fully agree. I think there's a lot of like public just hesitancy and things like that around science, especially because you can, you know, you can mess with your p-value and you can do these little statistical things. And there's a book I highly recommend for anyone who is interested in like all these different forms. It's called Enumeracy. And it goes into like all these different ways of displaying data or in analyzing data that can hugely affect the outcomes. And it has a lot of like examples in which that actually came true. Um, so kind of pivoting a little bit off of that, you mentioned that you like got into like Twitch streaming and playing your guitar a little more. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like any music you're working on now? Sure. Um, I'm working with, uh, producer Riley Gear, um, who was, I think formerly a member of Unknown Mortal Orchestra and now plays for Caroline Rose. Oh, do you know that? <laughs> I saw Unknown Mortal Orchestra like a couple years ago in, um, what was oh. it, like Belgium. Gosh, this is such a weird coincidence. <laughs> That's so dope. Yeah, he was their drummer for a while. Um, and I don't know how we met, but we were friendly. And um, I don't know, we were like talking about my situation back when this was happening in 2019. Um, and 
he like encouraged me to get, you know, to have him produce this song um, that I was writing as I was just like sitting <laughs> solemnly in my little apartment. Um, so I have a song coming out on June 18th. Um, I said that really weird, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is it? Just two weeks from now? This is very exciting. I'm going to keep an eye out for it when it does come out. Can you tell us anything about the song, like the title or anything? Do we get a little sneak peek? Yeah, it's called Winston. It's not about this situation in particular. Um, it was just, I was looking to write about like other experiences and I needed something to do as I was sitting there. Um, so it's kind of like a psychedelic rock song. Very, I would say very much in the style of, um, Unknown Mortal Orchestra and Riley played drums. Uh, my friend Jacob uh, Adam Davis from Memphis. Well, he was in Memphis, now he's not. Um, but he played lead guitar. Um, Erica Schaefer, who's another fantastic musician, is playing bass. And yeah, it'll be out. It's on my social media somewhere. <laughs> I'm really bad at advertising stuff. <laughs> it's a it's an ever growing thing to do I think especially with like social media and stuff being as it is um well thank you so much for joining us we'll keep an eye out for your um, EP coming out and thank you so much for talking about this I know it was a really difficult situation but I hope that now you've left you've hopefully been able to find a community in your MBA and here at PhD Balance too absolutely thank you so much for having me